0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Previously on the Serial Spoiler Special. We learned about a map. We learned about a neighbor boy.
1: You know, he got mature and retracted his testimony later.
0: A note. It was written in pen and that was different. We learned what Kathy said. You could totally misremember something if you add importance to it. We learned more about the Nisha call.
1: I was totally underwhelmed by the Nisha call.
0: And we learned that... Adnan failed to page Hay after she disappeared. Burning questions for you guys. Who the hell would he be talking to? That's a huge third person that no one's ever mentioned. Things that when this episode ended, you thought, okay, I really, I need to know. Where was where was Adnan's lawyer? What about you, Katie?
1: I don't know. I'm so confused. These
0: guys are so fucking wily.
1: <laughs> they are super wily. They're super wily.
0: Hi, I'm David Haglund, a senior editor at Slate. Welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast about Serial, the multi-part investigative series from This American Life. My partner in these spoiler specials is Slate staff writer Katie Waldman. She joins me from our DC studio. Hey, Katie. Hi. And our guest this week is another Slate staff writer, Amanda Hess. Welcome, Amanda.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Today we're talking about episode seven, called The Opposite of the Prosecution. Now, on this spoiler special, we tend to come at Serial from basically two perspectives. One of them is the perspective of of the case and what really happened. Obviously, like all of you, we're interested to try to figure that out as we listen, as we go along with Sarah Koenig's own reinvestigation of this case. But we're also interested in the way that she's reinvestigating it and, crucially, the way she's then relaying that to us, essentially the storytelling aspect. You know, this is a crafted narrative, and even if she doesn't know exactly where it's going, she's making choices about what she wants to tell us which week and so on. My sense is that this this week, this episode, our episode will be more about the second thing. Because really, we didn't learn much that's new about the case. Right, Katie?
1: I completely concur with that assessment. And I have to say that I was pretty enraged when I shut off my phone after listening to this podcast. Um, although I can, I can understand the need for sort of an exhalation, a reset. Um, this was a total sidecar episode. We went down um, a lane where we talked to Deirdre, who is a fascinating character. She works for the Innocence Project, and she and her team basically looked at the facts of Adnan's case and um, evaluated it and concluded in a not very surprising development that they Thought that he should not be in jail. And that was, I mean, she was a really interesting character. We learned a lot about what it's like to have a conversation with her and what the scanner in her office smells like. <laughs> it's laundry, um, and ink. And ink, uh, crucially. But, I mean, I just felt that there had been so many details and disarray, um, so many things unpacked, so many incoherent things and inconsistencies, and I really wanted um, Sarah to talk to me like I was stupid and walk me through all the things that she has thrown on the table so far and sort of weave something logical and sensical out of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I almost didn't even see it as a side street that Sarah was taking us on. It almost felt like she was, like, going off of a cliff to me <laughs> in this episode because she spent the last two episodes really trying to poke holes in the prosecution. Even the last episode she frames as this episode where she's going to bring all of this evidence to bear that the prosecution says implicates a non, and every time, you know, she has sometimes even a snide comment saying, well, you know, maybe this note where Anon appears to write that he's going to kill Hay is, uh, you know, maybe it's just too perfect. So we're just going to throw it away. (laughs) And here, you know, after like bringing all of that evidence, she decides to go and tell the story of this woman who plainly identifies as... A tree hugger who believes that everyone is innocent, and at the moment where Sarah Koenig says, "You know, it's not my job to figure out whether um, you know uh, anon can be exonerated. I just laughed out loud because she seems to be really bringing us in to this place where it seems like that's what she's trying to do, and she was she just seemed so enamored of this woman um, and her project that I really started to really distrust her as a a narrator.
0: Well, I'm going to make a qualified defense of this episode in a second, but I I think you make a good point about who Deirdre Enright is and how we should um, understand her perspective on this. And even though in general we are focusing On the podcast and what we learned there, we're not generally bringing outside information. I did want us to learn a little bit more about both Georgia Enright and also Justin Wolf, uh, who is uh, this uh, guy who's in prison now who comes up early on and then they kind of don't, I don't know, for me anyway, they didn't give quite as much information about his case as, as I wanted. I didn't totally understand why he was relevant. And as it happens, uh, Slate's resident legal expert, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, who, has, by the way, has her own podcast about legal issues called Amicus, which you should listen to, uh, she knows a good deal about that case, and she also knows Deirdre Enright personally. So I thought we could bring her on and ask her about those two people. By the way, hello, Dahlia. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Of
3: course.
0: Uh, the first one I want to ask you about is Justin Wolf. Now, this is a a guy who was convicted of murder but uh, later exonerated.
3: Uh, kind of exonerated. He's still waiting uh, for this all to shake out. But uh, I wrote about this case in, I think, 2011. This was a big, big deal in Northern Virginia. And it was kind of one of those cases where, you know, he's 19, he's a high school student. Uh, There's lots of like hookers and strippers and champagne. He's in some drug ring. Um, And then he is accused of this murder for hire, um, that his drug dealer is this guy, Daniel Patrol Jr., and Prince William County prosecutes Wolf, 19 at the time, saying that he arranged a hit on Patrol on his drug dealer because he owed him a bunch of money. And in 2002, a jury in Prince William Circuit Court convicts Wolf, sentences him to death. So this is 2002, now it's 2014. He's been in jail since then, he's been on death row most of that time. In 2005, he came within two weeks of being executed, David. Uh, and then in 2011, when I last wrote about the case, a judge, a federal district judge in Norfolk, vacated the entire conviction against him. Basically, this huge uh, opinion saying unambiguously that the prosecutors in Wolf's case had just concealed evidence, cooked up evidence. And the big, big thing at the center of it is that the guy who testified against Wolf is uh, this guy, Owen Barber, and that Barber made up most of his testimony that he in fact was coached by uh, the prosecutors, says the judge, to put all this on Justin Wolf and that he's threatened with the death penalty if he doesn't testify against Barber. So Owen Barber after the, in 2005 after the trial, he recanted all his testimony. He was like it was a lie. I uh Barber didn't hire the guy. I lied about everything. And then what's extra weird is that Owen Barber recants his recantation, right? So he's <laughs> gone back and forth back and forth. But even the prosecutors concede that without Barber's testimony, uh, there's nothing on Wolf, and yet Wolf is still in jail.
0: Well, see, this is why the the case was brought up because in in with Adnan Syed's case, I think that uh, Anand presumably sees a parallel there. The the Innocence Project uh, at UVA, headed by Deirdre Enright, they were involved with the Wolf case. Is that right?
3: Yeah, Deirdre uh, has been Wolfe's lawyer, and I think they were the ones who actually won that um, victory in twenty eleven with Judge Jackson, uh, who was willing to you know toss the entire case and. Uh, let Wolf walk free. So Deirdre, you know she's an amazing human being, but she has this clinic of law students who work here at the Innocence Project doing not just these DNA exonerations, but also cases like Justin Wolf's where there's a really strong claim of unbelievable prosecutorial misconduct.
0: Well, one of the striking things about Deirdre as we uh, meet her in this episode is that she seems so optimistic. You know, she just seems really bullish about the possibilities uh, of, you know, overturning these convictions, even as she concedes that it, that it happens so rarely. And I wondered, if, just as someone who knows her, I mean, is that just ha- how she is? She's just a, <laughs> a, a, a chipper, I mean, obviously incredibly hardworking lawyer, or, or do you think that she would only be that way if she saw something in a case that really kind of got her going?
3: Uh, kind of both. I, I, I partly just want to invite you to her St. Patrick's Day party, uh, because <laughs> she is just the most joyful person, and thus in some ways, the least likely person to do this just unbelievably harrowing innocence work where you have no funding, you have no manpower, you get people every single day saying, "Uh, I am in jail and I didn't do it, and I don't have a lawyer, can you help me? And she does it. So part of it is just Deirdre being Deirdre. Part of it, really is I think in Justin's case they've known now for years and years and years that the police and the prosecutors really did systematically you know coerce uh, testimony that wasn't true withheld what would have been exculpatory uh, documents they've already persuaded a federal district judge of that case I should add that the US Supreme Court had an opportunity to look at Justin Wolf's case and chose not to but this is really a case David of just unbelievable Prosecutorial overreaching, and the fact that even after uh, a, a district court judge said, "Oh my God, let him go," you have no case, uh, and they're still trying to get him. You know, even uh, on lesser charges. Now they're trying to to argue that okay, maybe he was not in charge of the murder for hire, but he was a kingpin under their theory, and it's still eligible. Uh, you know, for, for life in prison or the death penalty. So I think she's just looking at something that happens all too often in the criminal justice system, which is very, very zealous prosecutors with unbelievable incentives to go very, very hard on someone uh, who, even after they misbehave, and in this case, I don't think there's any doubt that there was misbehavior, uh, still need the win for political reasons. And I think this case is particularly frustrating for Deirdre, because as I said, they already objectively did win, and yet their client is still in jail
0: huh well i I think that helps shed some light on why odddenon would be interested in the case and why it would come up because if his conviction is is going to be overturned, and that is obviously completely and totally in doubt uh, as far as we know, um, it would have to be something similar they would have to you know probably turn up. Uh, something like that sort of misconduct, they would have to get get Jay to change a story, etc. But Dahlia, I want to just thank you again for for joining us and uh, you know shedding some light on on that story.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Now, see, all of that is 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 why I think this episode. Uh, is better than uh, some people, uh, some people in this room are perhaps giving it credit for. What is good to me about this episode is that you have actual lawyers who are getting involved, who are looking at the case, who are uh, going to examine things that, you know, should have been examined perhaps earlier in the season about, for instance, the forensics. To me, if there's a critique Uh, of this episode it is perhaps that you know it, it should have come sooner but but what about you guys Was there anything you liked at all
2: i mean there were definitely moments where i perked up um not because i liked them but because they were foreboding to me in a way so the moment where sarah says it's not my job to exonerate anon i thought was it was interesting because she keeps saying throughout the series like i'm not this or I'm not that. It's almost like anon being able to say, I didn't do this, but I'm not sure what I did do. She says, you know, I'm not a crime reporter. It's not my job to exonerate him. But I think she maybe doesn't really know exactly what her role is. And they're trying to figure out even what the series is as they're doing it. And we all have sort of different expectations for what it should be.
1: Yeah, I had another ominous moment. Um, this was... Pretty scary to me when she was talking to Deirdre when Sarah was talking to Deirdre and she says That's
0: my fear. Is I'm gonna get through all this and just be like, oh.
1: <laughs> And I heard this. A chill went down my spine and I thought, Oh God help me, like please do not let this be the end of the series.
0: Yeah, well it reminded me of something that Mike Pesca said to her when he interviewed her. I have this thought in my head. Don't let this wind up being a contemplation on the nature of truth. Don't let this wind up being a contemplation on the nature of truth. And when I first heard Mike say that, my thought was, you know, Mike, that's totally what this is going to be. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. And since then I've gone up and down, I think like many listeners have in terms of my expectations. But I still think if not a meditation on truth, it will probably be a meditation on the legal process and its relationship to truth. Uh, I don't have a lot of expectation that, that, that there will be a radical... Uh, change in the the case legally, uh, I, I would be happy to be wrong, but I do think they're they're dealing with that. There was an interesting piece uh, written by Linda Holmes this week uh, for uh, her blog on NPR about those exactly those expectations and the way that. The show has to has to deal with them and what listeners uh, think is going to happen because it's a, a certain kind of story. But I, I, for me, the, the the best moment of this episode by far uh, was was one that came at the very end. Me, I'm going to stay right here at home with my little garden spade and keep scraping at the thing that confuses me most. Jay, next time on Serial. So for me, that moment just just. Pulled me back in. I mean, even though I've made a, a, a defense of this episode, I was—I did find myself getting frustrated with it like you guys did. I, I want to learn more. I want to know th- things about the case that we didn't know before. And here we have these new people who are just looking at it the way she was six weeks ago. But Jay, I do want to know about Jay. And I ended it thinking, okay, fine, next week. We will learn more about him.
2: Yeah, that was such a relief to me. I mean, I think if I had to uh, summarize the big reveal of this episode, it would just be, next episode, she's going to talk about Jay. (laughs) Thank God.
1: Right, and it sort of nailed or brought home to me that um, this is a placeholder episode, and maybe that was necessary given like, sort of the fever pitch of all the unpacking that was happening before, and we sort of needed to take a step back and meet some new people. Um, but now we're ready to plunge back in.
0: Okay, well, those are some of the things that that kind of stuck out to us about this episode, but we're also interested in what you, the listeners, think and the questions that you're asking and the things you can't stop thinking about. Last week, we gave you an email address. It's podcasts at com. Write us, let us know what your burning questions are. We got a bunch of emails this week. Thank you for sending them. One in particular that I wanted to flag for us is from someone named Maggie. And here's what she said, or here's part of her email. Doesn't it strike you as odd that so many of the individuals involved in the story are high? They are either high on their way to get high, trying to come down from a high, or trying to hide the fact that they are high. I think that probably strikes some of us as odd and some of us as less odd for various personal reasons. But I'm curious what, what you guys make of that and how that affects, you know, next week we're going to learn about Jay. When we first met him, he was presented as, oh, he's this guy that I just got high with. But as the series has gone on, it seems like, oh, no, they're really close. I wonder how you guys, uh, you know, try to disentangle what that relationship really was.
2: I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the way this is presented is that we only know certain events that happened or certain activities that people participated in, certain phone calls they made, and we are like extrapolating the rest of their teenage lives out of those moments. So it may be that we caught non and Jay on a particularly high day. We don't really know um, the answer to that. Um, there, are, I mean, there are a lot of other things that I think we don't know about how they communicated, what they were doing. We learned in the first episode that Anand was checking his email or ostensibly checking his email uh, at the library computer. That is uh, now his alibi. Um, But we never hear of anyone trying to even find his email, see if he sent one at that time, like what he was saying in emails between him and Hay and his other friends. Uh, We just have these phone calls because that's what the prosecution focused on. But there's this whole life and mode of communication that we know nothing about.
0: Yeah, and the way that people communicate has changed so much that I think it it almost – it feels like there's this fog between us a- a- and them just because of that passage of time. You know, things like instant messaging had had started by 99 and, and had started, you know, people were using it. Were they using it? We haven't heard anything about that, so we can assume that they weren't, but maybe that assumption is wrong.
1: Yeah, David, speaking of fogs um, getting in our way, I just want to return to the high point for a second, like memory and recapturing things from six weeks back is like a big part of this case and i wonder if enough attention has actually been paid to the role of being high sarah even asks in the episode gosh it's so frustrating why can't adnan remember this important day on which he got a call from a police officer and one pretty plausible answer is well he was high all day
0: So this is the point in the podcast where we talk about our burning questions, the things we're going to be thinking about for the next week before we get another podcast. We got a few of these this week from listeners. Here's what Alana wrote. The question I keep coming back to is, what is Jay's motivation for lying if Adnan is innocent? Uh, Joshua, another listener, wrote, if you're Adnan and you had planned to commit this murder, wouldn't you make sure to build a rock-solid alibi into your plan? These, these, I think, are two of the largest questions that even after today's episode, you know, we're still wondering about. But w- what about you guys? Do you, did you guys end this episode thinking about a particular question?
2: Yeah. When Sarah, you know, uh, said that she was going to focus on Jay next episode and I was so relieved, uh, I was also a little bit nervous because I'm wondering if she will be able to introduce evidence that might implicate Jay without worrying about defaming him.
1: Okay, I'm not nervous about this. This is, you are looking a gift reindeer in the mouth. If, if she talks about, if she talks about Jay, I am very happy. I don't even have burning questions. I am just a stuffed creature full of anticipation, a reindeer full of anticipation instead of stuffing. <laughs> Sorry, that was terrible. Do not use any of that.
0: Uh, <laughs> Katie, we are definitely going to use that. And I and I'm before we go. I'm going to share my question, which which is actually about the forensics, because to me that was the one interesting, you know, case specific takeaway from this episode was that you know they highlighted some of the things that um, that should potentially have been evidence and yet haven't really come up. Possible DNA on um, you know this uh, liquor bottle that was found at the scene, for instance, and the the fibers from from the rope. Um, you know, maybe we'll learn more. Maybe they will try to see if they can find them and just turn up nothing, uh, that's, that's a possibility. But I will be wondering about what has become of that evidence and whether we'll learn anything more from it. Like I said, we want to know what, what you guys are wondering about, you the listeners. So send us an email, podcasts at slate.com. I want to thank Amanda Hess for joining us this week. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having me. And thanks as always, Katie.
2: Bye. Thanks.
0: Our producer is Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and the executive producer of all slate podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm David Hagland. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. The Gist is a daily show. It's about news and politics. I mean, that's what the iTunes section says, but it's kind of about everything. So on a recent show, we talked about vexillology, study of flags. We talked about toys, which toys belong in the Hall of Fame, and politics, actual politics. On an upcoming show, we're going to talk about the fallacy of thinking that you're an expert at something. There are a lot of very confident dunces out there. So find us in iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts to check out The Gist. Thanks a lot.